Welcome back to Brain Biohacking with your host, Kayla Barnes. We dive into all things optimal health, optimal brain health, nutrition, peak performance, cognitive excellence, biohacking, longevity, and so much more. And when that happens, you have all of a sudden become master over your own body. You've become master over your drives and urges. And after a few times of sitting there watching that drive and urge come up, and then you not acting it out mindlessly, you actually begin to rewire your brain and rewire those urges to things that are less urgent. Ariel, it's such a pleasure to have you here with me today. It is wonderful to be here with you. I'm so excited because, you know, I am a big fan of Muse and I'm a big, huge fan of meditation. I feel like meditation is finally getting its moment that we've all been waiting for. It definitely has. It started sort of in 2012. So prior to 2012, I was going around telling people we made a brain sensing headband that helps you meditate. And they just thought it was completely crazy. Um, and so we had to call it a cognitive trainer. And all of our branding was like, brains with muscles on them going like, Ooh, you can make a stronger brain. And people would do the demo. And occasionally somebody would say, Hey, is this like meditation? And we'd be like, shh, don't tell anybody unless you meditate. Do you meditate? If you do, then yes, it is meditation. And we'd like go into VC offices and pitch our brain sensing headband that helps you meditate. And they'd be like, this technology is incredible but what's the killer app? And we'd say meditation. And then be like, you're joking me. Come on. And I'm like, no meditation. And we'd be shooed out of their office. And literally eight years later, those very same VCs use Muse to meditate. So meditation oh really was the killer app. Um, it is very much not just the moment for meditation, but the, the middle of a groundswell of people recognizing the value that it has and really having had enough time for a lot of people to have practices and actually see the benefit in their life. Oh my gosh. First of all, I love the story about the VCs. This is amazing. Um, but let, okay, let's go back to your background and why did you become interested in meditation in the first place? So my background comes from neuroscience and psychotherapy. I was trained in neuroscience and then I was a psychotherapist in private practice for almost a decade. And along the way, I started collaborating with Dr. Steve Mann. He's a professor at the University of Toronto, and he's basically the guy that invented wearable computing. So uh, Steve in the 1990s would go around with a pair of glasses that basically looked exactly like Google Glass did in 2012. Um, they came out of the same lab at MIT. And he would have a huge backpack that had the computer system inside of it and all the batteries. And he was truly one of the world's first cyborgs and one of the inventors of the wearable computer. And I started collaborating with him in the early 2000s and about 2001. And he had an early brain computer interface system in his home lab. And so we began by creating experiments where we would hook one another up to a simple single lead EEG. 
And by shifting our brain state, by focusing or relaxing, we would then shift our brain waves. The system would detect that shift and we could program it to control the lights in the room, control audio, um, shift. <laughs> we got really silly with it. We had a whole responsive room where as you relaxed, the lights would get dim. As you fell asleep, the lights would turn off and the electric lines would close. Um, and so we were creating all of these experiences with brain sensing technology, and we were in search of the killer app. Like, you know, what is this thing that's going to make it not just cheesy? Because at this point in the technology, you certainly couldn't control a cursor with your mind. And we had silly things like a thought controlled toaster and, you know, thought controlled games, and you would focus on it to control it. But the the system wouldn't know if you were focusing on your toaster that you wanted to turn on or the light that you wanted to get brighter or the music or, or, and we realized that as we were teaching people to focus and relax in order to turn on the light bulb um, or make it brighter, what we were really doing was giving them feedback on their own mind. And the real key here was not a technology that was going to allow us to control the world outside us but a technology that could actually allow us to better control the world inside us. And so that was sort of the aha moment, um, the switch from what we thought was gonna be thought-controlled computing and you know revolutionizing the world of brain-computer interface to the recognition that we were actually allowing people to have insight. And every time they focused to make that light get brighter, they were actually learning about their focus. And they could actually, you know, see in real time what their brain was doing through that light. And then we could show them on the computer screen what their brain waves were doing. We could show them graphs that, that, you know, allowed them to see what their brain was doing moment to moment during the entire experience. And all of a sudden we recognized that, hey, we have something far more powerful than, than thought-controlled computing. We have the ability to actually control our own minds and our own thoughts with the system. Wow. First of all, he sounds like an amazing man. Um, I <laughs> yes. love this story and it's very cool that you guys were using immersive rooms. I love, I love that. That's amazing. So definitely there's major power in being able to focus your mind. And I think that everybody, we live in a society that is so interconnected. That is the only thing that people are looking for today is how to focus, you know? So the science of focus, if we can call it that meditation obviously plays a huge role, but what it, what is the science of focus? How can people start to focus better? Maybe even things that you can do at home. And then of course, things like incorporating, you know, a device like the muse. Sure. So focus requires training, um, which seems sort of weird, but just like any habit or ability that we have, it's highly trainable. Your focus, which is a corollary term for your attention, is probably the most important resource you have. How our brains work is they are giant interconnected webs of material, um, thoughts, ideas. They're constantly taking in information from the in outside world and processing it and relating it to the things inside. And what you focus on becomes the object of your attention in that moment. So as you look around the room, the part of the room that you're focusing on where you're putting your attention is what is now lighting up the visual system of your brain. It's now making interconnections about the colors, the the uh, the shapes, the patterns, the meaning, what you're looking at, the thoughts that are associated with on and on and on. 
Where we put our attention in our life is literally our most valuable resource. You can put it on your kids, on your work, on Facebook. You can let it just wander and your brain just wander anywhere it wants to. And then you are no longer, once you're in wandering, you're no longer in control of your most valuable resource. So if you want to improve your attention, the very first thing you need to do is recognize that you are actually in control of it. So in meditation, we have a word called mindfulness, that you're, you know, actively aware, paying attention to the world around you. And most of us probably go through our world relatively mindlessly, just kind of taking in what's there. You know, it's like, oh, there's stuff. It's in my brain. My brain has stuff. Um, and most of us just sort of wander through the world with ideas floating around our head. Now, when you start to train your attention and meditation is at its core, at its secular core, meditation is attention training. When you train your brain and attention, what you're recognizing is that you can choose where you put your attention and you can also notice when your attention wanders. So in a basic meditation practice, what you're doing is it's called focused attention meditation. You put your attention on your breath. Eventually, your mind is going to wander away from your breath and onto a thought. And then you notice that your mind has wandered and that you're no longer focusing where you wanted to. And then you bring your attention away from that thought and back onto your breath. So it's an incredibly simple process. You're focusing on one thing like your breath that you choose. Your mind wanders mindlessly. You notice, and then you choose to return your attention to your desired object of focus, your breath. When you do that, it's sort of this moment in which everything changes because normally when a thought comes up, we just follow that thought. And now we're thinking about the next thing and the next thing, and we're zigzagged off to God knows where. Um, but when you, for the first time, have your mind wander off and then say, hey, I don't need to follow that thought. I can choose to put my attention elsewhere inside my own head. Then you all of a sudden change your relationship to your thinking. You're no longer just at the behest of the crap that's in your mind. You're not able to actively manage your thoughts, choose where you put your attention in your own brain, choose the content in there that's important to you um, and be able to follow and appropriately partition the most valuable resource you have. And you can do that with the thoughts inside your head. You can do that with the world around you when you're choosing what you want to look at, where you want to be. You can do that with your emotions as you're choosing how you relate to them and what you put your attention on. You can do it with the pain in your body. You know, once you are able to recognize that you have control over your attention and train it, world's your oyster. I couldn't agree more. I think those are amazing tips. One big thing, in addition, of course, to meditation that a lot of people swear by in practice, and I also do, is kind of time blocking. Um, is there truth to these like 90, 60 to 90 minute cycles and then taking a break? Absolutely. So just like our muscles flag after we do a workout or, you know, towards the end of the workout, we're getting fatigued. Muscle fatigue is very real. Attentional fatigue is the same. So you are paying attention to something which requires a lot of cognitive resources. 
It requires a lot of glucose in your brain. It requires a lot of activity of your frontal lobe. It requires a lot of inhibition of the distractions around you. Um, it's very cognitively intensive. And it's quite obvious that your attention begins to flag. So in a meditation practice, you'll be able to see, you know, you can focus meditation for the first three minutes and then you've sort of lost it. And then you get better and it's 10 minutes and then you've sort of lost it. And then you get better and it's 14 minutes and then you've sort of lost it. Um, so when we time block in the real world doing activities and you say, okay, I want to focus on this thing for a period of time and then get up, take a break, reset, um, it's a fantastic cue for your attention because you allow yourself to focus on one thing for that period of time. You know that it's safe to let go of distractors for that period of time, because at the end of it, you're going to be able to deal with whatever you need to do, go to the bathroom, drink water, check emails, et cetera. Um, and you're giving your brain the essential break that it needs to reset for the next block of time. So when it comes to a protocol um, for something like meditation, and we'll get into how to utilize the muse with that as well, but what it's so hard for people to get into and, and myself included, you know, I've been meditating for probably seven years. But I remember in the beginning, it was very difficult and it still is hard sometimes to keep your focus and stay in the moment. So why do you think it is so difficult for people to get started with meditation? And what are some things that we can do to just start to build that practice? Sure. So I think, so I think the very first thing to recognize is that meditation is not about your mind going blank. So a lot of people, when they sit down to meditate the first time, you sit there, you close your eyes, it doesn't go blank. You have all these thoughts and you immediately think, oh, geez, I'm not good at this, which makes you feel bad, which makes you want to just get up and walk away because we don't like doing things we're not good at. So let's just get it out in the open. People's minds don't go blank. You will have lots of thoughts that is a-okay, not a problem. It's not your goal to get rid of the thoughts. Um, the practice of meditation is observing your thoughts and then making choices about them. So when a thought comes up, totally cool, that's fine. Um, it's your opportunity when that thought arises to notice that you're not having a thought and then learn how to let it go and bring your attention back to your breath to, to return to your meditation. And every time you actually notice that your mind has wandered and then choose to return, you're actually strengthening your attention. That's kind of like the bench press at the gym. Um, every time you notice and return, notice and return, it's called the attentional loop. So first tip, don't worry that you're not good at meditation. You're great at meditation. All you have to do is sit and observe. I think the second thing that really throws people off is then you don't really know what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> it's like, okay, great, great. so I'm sitting here. Um, I think I'm doing it right. Am I not? Um, and that's why we built Muse. So Muse is a brain sensing headband that gives you real-time feedback on your brain activity during meditation to let you know if you're doing it right. So you're literally hearing the sound of your mind. Muse is translating your brain activity into guiding sounds. And then you know when you're focused and when your mind is wandering. And so you can be easily cued to return yourself to your breath and uh, increase your metacognition, your ability to track your thoughts. And then I'd say one more reason that people kind of get freaked out when it comes to meditation or, you know, they start and they don't maintain their practice is it can be uncomfortable just to sit 
in silence with yourself. And yes, that's the goal. But when you sit there, like you get itchy and you want to get up, um, you start thinking about something else, the, the lunch that you want. And so you just want to go and eat it. And so it takes a lot of discipline to actually sit there. And in those moments when you're like, I just want to get up and eat something, like, what am I doing here? In those moments, those are the real teaching of meditation. Like that's the moment where you have the real opportunity to learn. Because in meditation, what we're part of what we're doing is observing our body's reactions and not reacting. So you might have the feeling come up in you of like, I really want a cookie. I really want a cookie right now. I got to go for that cookie right now. And do you need that cookie? No. Do you have to get up for that cookie? No. And in the normal world, you may just go up and get that cookie or go up for a cookie and then choose a slightly better thing to eat. But you're still just going to follow that drive and that urge. In meditation, what you're doing is you're observing that drive and that urge and not following it. And when that happens, you have all of a sudden become master over your own body. You've become master over your drives and urges. And after a few times of sitting there watching that drive and urge come up, and then you not acting it out mindlessly, you actually begin to rewire your brain and rewire those urges to things that are less urgent. So you may feel some discomfort in meditation, just sort of sitting there. And again, that's why a lot of people just are like, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. But when that happens, just take the curious observer, stop for the moment, observe yourself and say, it's a bit silly that I feel that way. That's fascinating. I wonder why I'm feeling that way. What would I normally do? What would I like to do? What would the wise me do? And just sit there and let the process run. I think that's so powerful. And I talk about it a lot as well. You're so right. You know, mindlessly moving through life, only doing things that you feel like doing every moment. I always say this, um, you know, sometimes I don't feel like going to the gym, of course, but when I reflect on what my life would look like, if I only did the things that I wanted to do or felt like doing, I mean, it would be a disaster, right? So in order to have the best of things, we have to do things that are uncomfortable and that we don't want to do. So I think that's a huge, you know, piece of wisdom just right there is you, you have to make yourself uncomfortable and actually get comfortable in being uncomfortable because that's where you have an opportunity to grow. I think that's so powerful. And then I think, the my, th I think my favorite phrase in life is your ability to sit with discomfort probably predicts your success in life. I could not agree more. I love that quote as well, because yes, anything in life that is great, it requires discipline, hard work, and, you know, just being uncomfortable. So I really, really love that. And I think that's a great piece. And I also love your analogy to strengthening, you know, the mind and, and fixing your attention. Essentially, everybody wants to have better attention, but not everybody wants to put in the work that's required to have better attention. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're upset by your attention or your focus, I mean, do something hard every day in the form of meditation. And what, how long do you think it'll take to develop? Like how long many sessions or weeks or months does someone have to stick with the meditation practice to start seeing real world benefits for their, from their attention? Sure. So if you start your meditation practice at just five minutes a day, and then uh, slowly move it up to 10. In the first week, you should start to notice a little something. 
Um, in our studies using Muse, with people using Muse for 10 minutes a day, by six weeks, people see in decrease in stress, improvement in sleep. There's actually a great study demonstrating uh, improvements of sleep by 20%, according to the Pittsburgh uh, um, Sleep Quality Index, which is like the gold standard sleep tracker. Um, we just did a study with doctors at the Mayo Clinic using Muse for burnout. They used it for three months and they saw uh, improvements in their cognitive function, quality of life, decrease in stress and improvements in resilience. Um, and they were using it as little as two minutes per day, um, on average five minutes per day. And it turned out that it wasn't the amount of time that they were meditating for with Muse that made the difference. They didn't actually see a big difference between the people doing it two minutes or 10 minutes or five minutes. Um, it was the consistency. So if you start a practice, stick with it, knowing that I coach groups meditating with Muse. And what I typically hear by week one is like, yeah, you know, fascinating to see my brain. This is really cool. By week three, it's like, hey, like things have gotten much quieter in my mind. You know, I don't feel so stressed. I have better emotional self-regulation and control. I didn't yell at my kids last night. And then by week five, week six, it's like, I want to do this every day for the rest of my life because life feels better when I do it. And on days when I miss it, my world just isn't as good. Like I found a new normal and it's better. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many benefits to meditation that you just named um, from improving sleep to reducing stress. Can you go through maybe like the top five benefits or maybe just some of your favorites and maybe explain a little bit as to why these benefits take place just based off doing meditation? There are so many benefits. Um, we'll dive into the brain and body a little bit to explain them. So let's start with attention and the, uh, a little bit of the science around attention. So in the front of your brain, you have the prefrontal cortex, and that's the part of your brain that's associated with your higher order processing. It's your attention, your planning, your inhibition, which is essential for attention. And the bad news is as you age, your prefrontal cortex thins. And the good news is if you're able to maintain a long-term meditation practice, you're able to maintain the thickness of your prefrontal cortex. So as you meditate, you are literally working out that prefrontal cortex. You are making that gray matter volume that's in there in your prefrontal cortex, you know, thicker or maintaining it as you age, keeping it from thinning. So it really truly leads to brain changes and improvements in attention. One of the next most common things you hear with meditation is I feel much calmer. Um, I don't feel as stressed and I'm not as reactive to situations. So inside our brain is the, or a little, um, item in our brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is the part of our brain that's always scanning for danger. It's looking for things that are scary and constantly reminding us to pay attention to the scary things, whether it's newspaper headlines, the stain on our pants before a meeting, real dangers like fires, imaginary dangers like pictures of fires, whatever it is, our amygdala is hyperactive and on it. Well, it turns out that when you start a meditation practice, you're actually teaching your amygdala to calm down. And people with a long-term meditation practice in an MRI show decreased activity of the amygdala and uh, over time might even show a decreased size of the amygdala. So it's making real impact. 
And there's a relationship between your prefrontal cortex and your amygdala. So it's kind of like the prefrontal cortex is the parent, the part of your brain that's responsible and in charge and can make smart decisions. And the amygdala is the little two-year-old who is freaking out at anything, who will be afraid of a shadow on the wall. And it's sort of like the amygdala sees the shadow on the wall and starts becoming upset and starting to send the messages around your brain and body of like cortisol reaction, you know, we need to deal with this, start sending messages in the form of thoughts about how bad this will be, sensations in the body, which then feed forward. Um, but then the uh, prefrontal cortex is able to come in and be the parent and look around and say, hey, that's just a shadow on the wall. It's not real. Amygdala, calm down. And what it appears is in long-term meditators, there's an increased ability for the prefrontal cortex to regulate the amygdala. So there's actually neuronal projections that come from the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala. And in a meditation practice, they seem to actually strengthen. So it's easier for the prefrontal cortex, the rational attentional part of your brain, to calm that amygdala down and downregulate it and make smart decisions in the world. Which leads us to another um, great benefit of meditation, which is the ability to make better decisions, um, not reactive ones. There's so many other benefits, including the ability to um, take better perspective and have compassion and empathy. And that's related to actually an area of your brain called the TPJ, the temporal parietal junction. And its particular um, effect in your mind is the ability to help you gain perspective um, and see from another person's eyes. There's also the physiological benefits of meditation, like calming you down. Um, so as you meditate, you um, often are breathing deeply. As you're breathing deeply, you're triggering your vagus nerve to move you into parasympathetic tone. Um, you're able to uh, listen to your heart rate often. And you know, as your heart rate increases, notice that you're feeling stressed and then bring in the intervention that allows you to calm down. So meditation also trains our ability to observe our own body, um, part of which is uh, the part of which is a responsibility of an area in our brain called the insula. And in long-term meditators, you see more activity in that insula. So meditators are better able to actually observe what's going on inside of you. And when you do that, you can then make better choices, like say, oh, I notice I'm kind of ramped right now. I should calm down for a few minutes before I go and talk to my kids, or I'm just going to yell at them for whatever annoying thing they're doing at this moment. I could go on and on and on about more benefits of meditation, but I'll, I'll pause there. Well, I think that's definitely a lengthy list and enough to get people started meditating at least. Um, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about it. On days that I meditate, I feel more calm, more focused. Um, and there's really no other way to say it than it's a really great feeling. When it comes to types of meditations though, so I've read a lot of different books on different types of meditations. There's more of an active meditation, right? Like a walking meditation. I actually try to, and I don't know that this is as effective, but a lot of times when I'm at the gym, I don't listen to music and I use it as kind of like a meditative, really like focusing on the mind muscle, like mind body connection. And I even use those moments to really kind of turn inward. But with so many different types of meditations, 
Um, what is the most effective and what types of meditations do you offer on the Muse app? Sure. So the most studied form of meditation that most people use first is focused attention meditation. And that is the form of meditation that, as it sounds, teaches you to focus your attention. And you can focus your attention on anything so long as it is one thing and you're able to stably maintain your attention. So often it's your breath, um, but it could be a mantra. So mantra-based meditations are often focused attention meditations where you're thinking of a word or a phrase in your mind repeatedly. And when you wander off to a thought, instead you let that go and come back to the word or the phrase. Um, there are also body-centered meditations, which use a very similar concept, but you're moving your attention around your body. So in Muse, for example, we have focused attention meditations, and that is our Muse mind meditation. And it's uh, the most popular one. It actually lets you hear what's going on in your mind during meditation and lets you know when you're focused and cues you when your mind has wandered so that you're able to come back to your focus faster. So it really lets you kind of um, uh, double down on your meditation and be able to build that metacognition more effectively and be able to better build that muscle of noticing and returning, that sort of bench press rep at the gym. There are also in Muse sensors that detect your heart. So we have heart meditation where you're literally li listening to the sound of your heart like the beating of a drum. And this tunes something called your interoception. So you might've heard of, many people have heard of and done body scan meditations where you're putting your attention on an aspect of your body and simply being with it. And increases in your interoception have been proven to decrease stress. And they do that because as I talked about earlier, you're better able to actually see where your body's at. You're better able at sensing your own body and building that relationship. And so you know what it needs. Um, there's also lots of different types of breathing meditations. Um, so, you know, common breath meditations are like a box breath where you in for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four. And any breathing pattern that's going to give you a long extended exhale, like in for four, out for six, is going to actually improve your, it's called your vagal tone. So as you breathe out, it's a fascinating phenomena. As you breathe in, your heart rate increases. As you breathe out, your heart rate decreases. And so when you spend longer in your out breath, you're spending longer in your decreasing heart rate, which then signals to your vagus nerve that everything's calming down. And it then signals your body to move further into parasympathetic tone. So that's why extended exhales are very valuable within meditations. In Muse, we have the mind meditation, the heart meditation. We also have breath meditation. So there's breath sensors that track your breathing patterns and um, can help you breathe different patterns along with audio guides and actually see how your breath patterns are doing. It's very cool. And then we have body meditations that help you find stillness in your body. We have body sensors. And then there's an entire range of guided meditations. So in meditations, you can either be unguided where you're guiding yourself or guided when you're listening to content. Um, and in Muse, we have over 500 different guided meditations in all sorts of different topics. So performance, relationship, leadership, um, uh, baseball collections, because we have lots of sports teams that use Muse, college collections. So we kind of say if there's something going on in your life, 
we've got a meditation for that. And those can be used either with or without the headband in order to get your real-time feedback during a guided meditation. Wonderful. Can you talk a little bit about how the experience of Muse, you've talked about the features a lot, but when you actually put the headband on, you hear either little birds, right? Or a variety of different sounds that give you direction as to whether or not you're quieting the mind. Yeah. So when you slip the headband on, for those on the video, this is a muse. Um, so they're EG, forehead, EG sensors on the forehead and behind your ears. And when you slip the headband on, it connects to the app on your phone. And you then choose a soundscape. So there's lots of different soundscapes and you choose one that really fits for you. I like the rainforest because I love the metaphor of my mind being like a storm. And as I begin my meditation practice and I focus on my breath and I calm down, the storm calms. And as I'm focused on my breath, little birds begin to tweet, which are actually reinforcement directly to your brain, the neurofeedback that tells your brain, yep, you're doing the right thing. This is the right state. Stay there. And then as my mind wanders off into a thought, the sound of the rain will pick up. And that is my cue to say, oh, that's a thought. And what's great about the rain is I'm not caught up in the content of the thought. It's just, oh, there's a thought. Great. I just hear it as rain. And then it's my cue to bring my attention back to my breath. And then the rain calms back down again. And it really feels like you're listening to your own mind. It doesn't feel like there's a piece of technology telling you, you know, what to do. It really just sounds like, oh, my mind has wandered. Yep, it's rainy in there, it's stormy, let's calm the storm. And then after the fact, you get data, charts, graphs, and short scores that show you what your brain was doing moment by moment, um, and the ability to really track your progress over time. And you can really see how the line of your attention and wandering thoughts shifts and changes over time as you get better and better at the practice. Is there a correlation, you know, things sometimes not necessarily the quantity, but the quality is that kind of the consensus with meditation. So if you could do, you know, if you could meditate for 25 minutes a day, but not have a lot of focus versus having, you know, 10 minutes of meditation a day, that's ultra focused, which one is better? Is there, is there a benefit or a difference? Uh, so I would go with the 10 minutes of ultra-focused meditation any day. Um, because again, what you're doing is you're training the brain. So it's very much the same question of if you went to the gym and you spent a bunch of time just sitting on the floor, checking your email, <laughs> and then a few minutes on the treadmill, and then a few more minutes on the floor, checking your email, um, which is going to be, you know, what's going to be your better time spent at the gym. Um, in meditation, very much the same thing as your mind is wandering off to essentially check your email, you're no longer doing the active meditation. And so it, you can be far more efficient with it when you're able to realize that your mind has wandered very quickly. And in a traditional meditation practice, it's often, you know, one, three, five minutes. And then you're like, oh, right. I'm thinking about that fight I had with my boyfriend or the work I need to do. Um, and you don't realize you're meditating. And all of that has essentially been you know, time in your meditation that you've not been as effective as you could have been. And so with Muse, as soon as your mind wanders, you know, you know, within a second or two and it cues you and you come on back. And so in a normal meditation uh, in 10 minutes, you know, maybe you'll mind wander and come back 10 times with Muse. You can do that a hundred times. And each time you do that, you're training your brain to notice mind wanderings and then to have the skill of returning quickly 
and sticking with your attention. And that really builds not only the muscle of your attention, but also your metacognition, your ability to really observe your own brain and your own body's workings. I love that. And it's also great because if you're going to put the effort into do meditation, or at least maybe I'm just very type A, but I want to track my progress and I want to know that I'm doing it really well. So I think this is a way to really achieve both of those. You get to A, improve, and B, it's gamifying it a little bit, right? So you want to keep showing up to do the meditation because it would be a real bummer to do like 10 days in a row and then miss the 11th day. So I think there's also some influence in terms of habit building by using a device like yours. Yeah. So we use a lot of uh, habit formation techniques and behavioral science inside of it to just get you to meditate (laughs) because meditation is phenomenal for you if you do it regularly, you know, meditating once and then not doing it again is about as good as going to the gym once and then not following up on it. So it, it takes work to get that practice going regularly. And, you know, we try to take some of that work out and automate that work for you. Well, I think it's wonderful. Outside of, you know, just meditation, where do you think that the industry might be going in, ter- in terms of like brain biohacking, we can call it? Oh, so many good places. Um, so there's obviously a whole range of nootropics that have, you know, moved on from the simple racetams or ginkgo biloba. Um, so we're finding new, or they, I should say, are finding new, fascinating new nootropics regularly and more importantly, getting better and better science and data. Um, the world of stimulation is coming fast and furious. So, you know, in the past, if you wanted to do brain stim, you'd be doing TDCS, transcranial direct current stimulation, um, kind of as a biohacker with wet sponges, starting about 2012, that started changing with a few devices coming out on the market, but they were very poorly researched. And like the research just wasn't there at the time to demonstrate the safety and efficacy of it. Um, Now, you're seeing more TDCS stim devices coming that are like well-regulated. Some of them are FDA cleared um, and, you know, they, they know where in your brain they're working and why. And so you're going to see more of electrical stimulation. Also kind of long tail. I have friends who are doing things like focused ultrasound um, to stimulate the brain. Um, TMS, for example. So TMS is transcranial um, magnetic stimulation. And TMS has been used very effectively in really uh, treatment resistant depression. Um, It's been used effectively in autism, um, but it in the past has required a very large machine with massive uh, magnets, three of them that are quite loud and uh, require clinical practice. Um, I have partners out in Wave Neuro and they've developed an RTMS, a rapid TMS machine that can potentially even be used um, in a home setting. So there's a lot of ways that the standard neurotechnology phenomenon that used to be in labs really are moving into consumer hands in ways that are much safer. Um, and regulated and well-studied because I am 
only interested in the neurotechnology interventions that have incredibly strong science and validation um, and safety and efficacy behind them. Absolutely. As we spoke about before the podcast started, our brain is our most expensive, most important real estate in our body. Can't get another one. So when it comes to things like this, yeah, I think it's a good idea to exercise caution. What do you think about like intranasal red light therapy? Oh, it's great. Um, so my friends at Violite make a great intranasal red light. Um, so red light stimulates at 660 or 880. It increases cytochrome C, it gets your mitochondria going, it decreases inflammation and it really works. So I um, have done intranasal and transcranial uh, direct, um, intranasal and transcranial uh, photobiomod. So both red light and red laser, and it's really effective. Um, I've lent out my nasal photobio um, system to other people, and they haven't necessarily had the same effect. Um, I was particularly sensitive to it for some reason, but I found a significant increase in cognition. Um, I highly recommend it. I love that. How often were you doing it? I actually have one here. I need to go back to doing it. Uh, daily. And then I stopped because my thoughts began racing so fast. Um, I began to find it actually contraindicated for Mm me. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. So do it, but you know, observe yourself most, as I said, I I've never found anybody who had such a strong reaction to it. Um, it was very effective. That's amazing. If you wanted to create like the ultimate meditation stack, you know, everybody thinks more is better these days. So um, would there be any like nootropics or like, what about cold water therapy or red light therapy and then doing a meditation? Do you have any favorite kind of practices or protocols that you like? Oh, sure. Um, So, I mean, you can add red light therapy on top of anything and it can potentially enhance it. So sure. You know, meditate in your sauna with your infrared, with your red light therapy, lamp on or intranasal, uh, no reason not to. I did a long course of hyperbaric oxygen and did a lot of meditation inside of the chamber because why not encourage the the growth of new neurons in those areas um, well in the chamber. So, you know, let's perfuse the brain with oxygen while we're doing these activities and they probably enhance them. Um, in terms of stacks, obviously exercise, anything that's going to increase BDNF, um, is going to help you make new neural connections and learn what you're doing faster. Um, so exercise is great to pair with meditation when you're actually meditating. So a lot of people are like, oh yeah, exercise is my meditation. And what they really mean is that they're running on the treadmill and they're just sort of dreaming the whole time. That is not meditating. Meditation. in the forms that we're discussing requires the intentional attention on one thing um, and staying there, staying fixed in that attentional state. And if it's internal sensory processing, you know, you're feeling your feet moving on the treadmill, you're listening to the sound of your feet one after the other, and that's what you're fully focusing on. You're, you know, focusing on the sensation in your arms as you lift and what it feels like. That's great meditation. Do it. You know, that that really, really works. Um, in terms of nootropic stacks, um, L-theanine is the kind of gentlest and 
easiest one to add. Um, it has very few side effects, not that I'm making any recommendations, and has been demonstrated to increase alpha waves. So it can help you actually chill out and increase more of the brain activity that is in part associated with meditation. I love that. Um, I'll definitely have to try some, some of those protocols. A lot of times I always, I always try to do multiple things at once, of course. So either meditating, <laughs> I mean, of course, you know, why wouldn't you? Um, but I'll do definitely red light or sauna and meditation. And I think it's a really practical way too, because for me, you know, there's only so much time in a day I'm running a business, I'm doing all these things. And if I can do two things at once, and they're both equally as effective, I find a lot of joy in that. And I think it also makes it easier to adhere to. So maybe that's a suggestion for the listener. If you're already doing an infrared sauna, or you're already doing a red light panel, you know, just put it on the floor and do your meditation there. But I think everyone listening to this should definitely meditate today. I will certainly include all of your bio and your link and details URL. I also, you know, Muse, you guys were so gracious to give me a code for all of the listeners today. So that is choosemuse.com backslash Kayla and you get 20% off. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, it's my joy and my pleasure. And it's always fun to jam with other biohackers and, uh, figure out how we can short circuit our meditation to make it more effective. I love <laughs> so it. So thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Hacking was created and is hosted by Kayla Barnes. This podcast is for informational purposes only and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Kayla Barnes, does not accept responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of the information contained herein. Opinions of their guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical issue, consult a licensed physician.